The following is a pre-recorded program. 907 at News Radio 680 WPTF. Tom Kearney on a Monday night. It is April 22nd, the day after Easter. Easter occurred this year, just for your information, just about as late as it can occur on the calendar because of the way they calculate it. Uh, so don't go away after tonight. And there'll be plenty more things you can learn tonight, but there you've got one. Don't go away saying you didn't learn anything. We're here every night, Monday through Friday, from 9 until 10 with a little bit of live and in real-time radio. And about 10 years ago, I got to do something that I wanted to do, uh, and that is I, I like to recognize historical events and the births and deaths of significant people. We've, we've devoted at least one program all of the 30 years we've been on to either the birth or death and sometimes both of Elvis Presley. Uh, and one of the people that I that is more significant in the long run than Elvis Presley is a guy named William Shakespeare. And we all know that name, but after we get out of school, very few of us confront it. Those of us who, those of, who do confront it are warm with it. They like it, and they, they do more and more of it. But most people um, don't have the touch with it that, that they would like to have. They don't go to see a Shakespeare play. They don't watch Shakespeare plays on television. They know a lot of quotes that came from Shakespeare, but they don't necessarily know that they came from Shakespeare. So I, I managed to, to invite a guy who I had met and talked to because he worked at the same place Mrs. Kearney did at the time. His name is Gary Walton. He's from Virginia, uh, South Boston. Is that, is that not right? You got it. And he got a Ph.D., wouldn't you imagine, at the University of Virginia. And he has been teaching at Meredith College for yo these many years. And I had had conversations with him, so I knew he was uh, conversational and knew his stuff. And so I invited him to come, and it's been so good. We've invited him to come back every year since then. And, in fact, a couple of years ago, we had you— last. It, the last few years, you've brought somebody with you. We got yes. to talk with this— uh, uh, Jonathan Wade about Cervantes. All right. Because and, he and Shakespeare may share the same date. All right. Okay. We just had something interesting here. Uh, John, can you tell—are we, are we still sending stuff out? Okay. The, uh, the, the power winked like it does at your home when a—, when a when a power line touches a tree here, yeah, and we it, must have said the magic word, Tom. <laughs> well, well, what I want now we have to figure out is what we want, and I probably should should say that uh, I, I've started to write it down, and I, I decided that I would describe you as Dr. Gary Walton, a professor of English at Meredith College for many years. He has been a dean and things like that. If you would, if you want to say those offices. I don't want to sell you short in any way, but uh, but you are no longer the dean. You've, you've no, done your duty. I, but you've... Uh, when Shakespeare's birthday came around in 2016, okay. um, there were lots of opportunities for me to write articles and make presentations. And I found out it was hard to do Shakespeare and to teach and to be dean. So I tried to figure out which of those two things would be the most fun to do. And the deaning came in third. So <laughs> we have a very fine dean also from the University of Virginia, now at Meredith. So I get to talk to you and to go to conferences like I was at this past weekend and to still teach a Shakespeare class every semester. So you I'm see, having fun. You see the value in, in my letting him tell you all that is that he knows all of that thing. In fact, one of the things that you might talk about ultimately tonight, because we don't rehearse this program, is 
what people who go to conferences on Shakespeare. In fact, it's sort of like, here's the news. That was a little bit the way I felt, Tom, when I was there. The first time I went to a Shakespeare conference, there were about 600 people there. And I, I had been to conferences with 10,000, uh, most of whom I didn't know and most of whom were interested in things I didn't care about. But when I got to the first Shakespeare conference, I said, I found my tribe. Here are my people. This year's conference, instead of 600, had about 12,000. And that was an amazing thing to me because, as you said a minute ago, many of us think Shakespeare is on the way out. Well, what I discovered is that the Shakespeare Association of America is making a concerted effort to open the doors and not to be guardians of the sacred flame. Instead, they had many sessions about new topics and new approaches to the topic. They were featuring young graduate students and young um, PhD um, holders. So it wasn't just the same old crowd telling the same old stories to each other. It was a very lively and amazing place. Now, the question I have is, do I mention Harold Bloom's name tonight? <laughs> uh, and, and there is one sense in that I, I do want to mention. But I want to go back before you go on. But I, I want to let you go uh, because it's, this is kind of like news. I, By the way, this is this is as good as it could be because uh, I have a friend who, who, I, who teaches astronomy uh, or at least he's a, I hope he's my friend, uh, uh, Stephen Reynolds, who teaches astronomy at, at NC State. And he comes and talks about things in the heavens once in a while. Well, one of the times, one of the last times he came in, we had like breaking news. It was just, a, it was not this black hole thing that they came up with a couple of weeks ago, but something like that about gravitational waves. The last thing that Einstein predicted. Yes had been demonstrated to be true. And rarely did we have breaking news, but you've just been to a conference. Where did, where did, where did they have room for 12,000 people? This one was in Washington, D.C. And what normally happens is that they have one conference hotel where all the sessions are held, and then they farm us out to four or five hotels nearby. But with the metro system, or these days, they've got scooters, um, mm -hmm. Ubers, and Lyfts, so people don't have any trouble getting to the conference. Well, I remember going to a convention that the Southern Historical Association presented one time, and it was in Louisville, and they just—it was not the right place. After that one, they decided there were three places in America they could have it that had enough restaurants, had enough rooms, and had enough meeting rooms. So the, the place was overloaded. It, yes. It was a nice idea, but it just didn't work out. And well, what many of the folks try to do now is move them back and forth. So there's one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, and one somewhere in the middle That's in good. Austin or in St. Louis or in Chicago. But it was easier for those of us on the East Coast to go to D.C. But mm -hmm. again, as I said, what was most interesting to me was to see all the new approaches. The session that I was in was asking the question, what does Shakespeare mean today in the 21st century? As you said, so many of us encountered Shakespeare in school or maybe in a college course or maybe in an English lit survey, um, sometimes with a teacher who was um, had once been excited about the topic but wasn't anymore. And I think sometimes we get inoculated the way we get a measles vaccination if we encounter a subject in school and are convinced that it's not interesting, then the rest of our lives, we have gotten that inoculation. And so we never have to look at mm -hmm. Wordsworth or Jefferson or anybody else ever again, because we know it and we know we don't like it. Well, so I'll tell you something I've discovered in my old age. I was telling you, I've gotten to the point where I want to write a book called What I Have Learned, is that sometimes 
people get in the situation where they're a teacher and they've taught it and they forget that the people that are sitting out there have never heard it before. They've right. heard it 28 times. What you've got to do is renew yourself. I mean, I've had a program like you're doing tonight and somebody, whoever the guest was, said, well, we did that last year. Yes, but it, the, the same people weren't listening. You, and, and part of what I was amazed to discover, I was in a session that was talking about Shakespeare in new incarnations, Shakespearean appropriation, Shakespeare applications. So we talked about um, comic books. Some of us grew up on classic comics, and those mm -hmm. are well-illustrated but pretty legitimate retellings of the language of Shakespeare's plays. But there are also uh, cartoon versions. There are manga versions. There are role-playing games. There are digital games. There are tweeted versions of Shakespeare. People are doing various and sundry kinds of things every day, every year, in class, in the streets, publishers are creating new versions to sell. And what I expected the Academy to do was say, oh, no, no, we have to preserve the real, the correct, the appropriate Shakespeare. But what I found instead was really interesting to me, which is that the Shakespeare Association of America is open to and embracing a variety of different remakings for our time of texts that were remade in their time out of even older stories. Okay, now, I'm, I'm sort of the stodgy one here. I'm going to represent that interest. Uh, uh, but we need to take a break first. So if we're going to find out how this comes out, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to have to wait. We'll be back with uh, Gary Walton, professor of English at Meredith College and Shakespearean scholar. That's right, isn't it? Shakespearean scholar, sorry. Uh, I once had an English teacher tell me I should be very careful about what I say, and I've been very careful most of the time since then. We'll be back. Uh, one thing, though, I'm going to give you the telephone number. It's 919. That's the area code. Easy to remember. 860-9783. If you have letters on your telephone, works out to be our call letters, WPTF. So it's 919-860-9783 or WPTF. I hope I can say this right. If you have uh, a Shakespeare experience, if you've been to a great play or to a place where they where they have, uh, like they do in Stanton, Virginia, and they used to have in High Point, and they have in Stratford, Ontario, Canada, or Stratford-upon-Avon in England or someplace, or you had a particularly good um, uh, presentation of a Shakespeare play that you went to, if, you, if, it's, if it's anything like that that you want to, I'm going to borrow from my Baptist friends now, if you want to testify about it or ask Dr. Walton about it, give us a call, 919-860-9783. To commemorate, I didn't do this. Think about where we were. You're the brains of this outfit, Dr. Gary Walton. We and, didn't tell them what day it is. Yeah, we, we've got to, we, yeah, that's what we got to do, right? And we got to do it right now before we both forget it. We're a couple of geezers here, but. So today is April 22nd, and the day that Tom normally invites me to come on is April 23rd. Right. And the reason for that is we know from the records that are still in the um, church in Stratford that Shakespeare died on April 23rd, 1616. We know that he was christened on April 26th of 1564. And since a baby wasn't typically christened on the day that he was born, it's very convenient to say Shakespeare was born and died on the same day. April 23rd is the day that is celebrated. And it's also 
um, St. Crispin's Day is also the patron saint, St. George's Day. And so there are lots of reasons why the April 23rd is the day for the preeminent English playwright to be born. So we, we've assigned him to, to April 23rd. And we're going to wave the flag every year on that day. And you are here to commemorate that. And we just want to say some things. I want Dr. Walton to say some things that will remind you of the significance. More books have been written about uh, Shakespeare than only, I think, uh, what is it, the Bible and Jesus or something like that? Did I, that's approximately right. And, uh, and I've told you before, Tom, that I started out at Virginia wanting to write a dissertation about Faulkner because all of his papers were there and he had taught there. And when I made the mistake of shifting from Faulkner to Shakespeare, I found out the only person in English literature who had had more dissertations written about him than Faulkner was Shakespeare. Uh-huh. Okay. And the interesting things there is that there are about five identifiable signatures that are available that you can find, and that's about all that he ever writ. I know that's not right, that you can find. I mean, he the plays are there. Well, what you're talking about is the original handwriting. Right. What we've got are signatures on the will. We've got a couple of lawsuits that he engaged in and signed. And there's one document that people are really excited about. The play Sir Thomas More was written by several hands, and there are extant copies of at least some pages from that. And there is one page that is in hand D, and scholars want very badly, and so we continue to argue that hand D is really a page written by William Shakespeare in his own hand. And it was just a couple of years ago that that most important of volumes— the first folio, and we would not have a lot of his plays to read in any form if it had not been collected That's right. a few years, seven years after his death. And a, a copy of it, I think at least one copy, came to the Museum of History. Is that not yes, right? Yes, in 2016, because that was the 400th anniversary of his death. We're probably going to have another celebration in 2023, because that's the 400th anniversary of, of that the, book's publication. And these days, it's just known as the first folio. It clearly was not the first book that was ever published in large, expensive folio format, but it was the first Shakespeare folio. Well, you know you're into it when you say things like, I mean, I used to be interested a lot in, in Gettysburg, and, and I f would be around people who knew about Gettysburg, and they talk about the peach tree and the devil's den. Well, if you're an aficionado, you know exactly where those places are. Well, if you say first folio, if you, if you think of anybody other than Shakespeare, then you, you need to go back and do some more reading and, and take a few classes. Well, you can tell that it's a, a masterwork when there are biographies and critical versions, hundreds of pages just talking about the book not about the person who wrote it, but about the history of the book itself, how it was edited, how it was reprinted. Um, Henry Clay Folger and all the editions he collected and then gave to the United States and got the Library of Congress to build him a whole building just to house them. Well, I've got two books, one about the building of the library and one about the, he and his wife that I've purchased in the last three or four years. I'm that interested in, in, in the folio, but he is the one who went out and collected all the folios. I went to, to the Library of Congress one time to do some research on something I was interested in, and I went out at lunch to find a place to eat lunch, and I found a sandwich, and I was going back. and I had a little extra time, and there was this building that I had no idea what it was, but right up there next to the Capitol, next to the Library of Congress, because Henry Clay Folger had lots of cash, and he, had, he hired people to buy the land for him so they wouldn't know it was his land. 
Um, I learned a story this weekend about that from the director of the Folger Library. He said he found out that that land was actually owned by the federal government because they had planned an expansion of the Library of Congress on that property. That's why it abuts the library. <laughs> and that it took an act of Congress to get them to allow that land to be deeded to the Folgers to build the Folger Library. If you wonder how you could pull this off, uh, I was looking at the, the biography. of It's a joint biography of him and his wife yes. because they, they were very close. They had no children. They spent their time collecting books. This and they, was their lifetime project. And they lived in a small apartment. They could have lived in the biggest house in Washington. But if you see a picture about the time that John D., and you know who I'm talking about, was uh, facing the breakup of the Standard Oil Company, and there are five guys walking along Chances are one of them is Henry Clay Folger because he was his money. He was his money, numbers cruncher is what he was. He, exactly. He, he looked after the money and, and, and the numbers. And before Exxon, there was SO, and before SO, there was SO, Standard Oil. Standard Oil. And that was, that was all of the companies, almost all the oil companies in the United States at that time. I was thinking about this the other day simply because somebody said something about Cleveland. Hmm. And uh, we were discussing this. And Mrs. Kearney did not know that John D. was from Cleveland. In fact, what we were talking about was the minister at Pullen Baptist Church here was a man named Edmund McNeil Petit, and he left Pullen Baptist to go to the uh, uh, church in, in Cleveland. I think it's the church, I need to look it up, that Rockefeller was a member of because he went to Sunday school and church every Sunday. I think you're right. He thought God intended for him to have that money, and he thought God intended for him to give it away, but it had to pass through his hands. <laughs> No, he was a good steward of those resources. He liked that word. That's exactly the, why there's a, uh, the Ford Foundation. And I'm not kidding you. But so, any, so speaking of Shakespeare. Yes, I'm sorry. We got off the subject. We were having too much fun. What I'm really interested in, if there are listeners who are uh, willing to tell us, is what Shakespeare has meant to them and what the concept of Shakespeare means today. I've told you that at the SAA, we were looking at games and videos and cartoons and lots of modern manifestations of how Shakespeare has been translated or transmogrified into some kind of contemporary culture. But I'm curious what that concept or that term or that author means to other folks besides you and me. We need to stop right here and check the news, find out what's going on in the world. Uh, Dr. Gary Walton, as our guest, will be back. The following is a pre-recorded program. 933 at News Radio 680 WTTF. Tom Kearney here with Dr. Gary Walton from Meredith College. Who, we're talking about William Shakespeare, who uh, died, uh, Gary, 404 years ago tomorrow? 403. Three. 403 years tomorrow. He probably was born on or about that date. I didn't get to say when you were talking about setting the date that I named the first cat I had came to me. He, I didn't know when he was born. He was born sometime around that time, so I assigned his birthday to, to because of Shakespeare to That's April. Totally 20th. appropriate, right? It, it was. It was. Uh, if Shakespeare could have his assigned to that day, but I mean, they're pretty sure. I think because of the christening. So tell us your Shakespeare story, Tom. When do you first remember reading the plays, and then much later seeing them? I well, guess. Well, I think I probably read them. Uh, in high school, you know, uh, Julius Caesar was something we read when we were sophomores. And when we were seniors, I think we had to read the Scottish play. I can't even think of the name of it now. But what I like about Shakespeare, most of all, is I like to read Shakespeare quotations. Yes. Uh, 
I, I really like, I like quotations. I like, I have books of quotations, books of aphorisms. Yeah. Do you pithy things? I like things yeah. that are said. And he says some things. I was watching a program. Uh, well, I'm trying to think it, uh, designing women one night. You remember that program? Yes. You wouldn't yes. expect to find it here, but once in a while the writers there would get right down to it. And, um, the older, uh, uh, woman was out with a young, a guy she had gone to high school with. And he was dying, mm. and she would not date him during high school, but she went out with him to eat dinner. And in it, uh, she recited, they have cut me out from the stars, which is what, Romeo and Juliet? Yes, and, yes. And, but That's about as nice a thing as you can say mm. to anybody. Mm. Mm. And you, you, But you find little bits of Shakespeare in places that you don't expect it. I even have a book called Shakespeare's Guide to Leadership. Mm-hmm. That he has been turned into yes. all kinds of things, yes. as you, yes. I'm sure, know. Shakespeare as a commodity. As a commodity, right. And, uh, but anyway, that's one of those feel-good books. Well, part of what you were talking about, I think, is probably less the case these days, that people go to the plays for the language or the mm-hmm. expression of a commonly felt, I mean, what um, Dr. Johnson said was also thought, but ne'er so well expressed. I think that's what people for generations, for hundreds of years, turned to Shakespeare for. But the history of the plays is, or the reception of the plays, is the history, surprisingly, of them being in fashion, then out of fashion, and then back again. Can I stop you for one second? Sure. I sent you an email today, I think, and I mentioned Rumpel. Do you do you remember yes. this? You yes. Probably, I, I thought he's not going to know what I'm trying. Rumpel of course, is a fictitious uh, uh, barrister. barrister. But when he's backed into a corner, he's likely to quote Shakespeare, and he knows it. And I think something that I perceive to be the case is that even those students in English schools, British schools, English schools, who don't go beyond the the first form, I guess it would be, you know, just a a no, no graduate, they know some Shakespeare, though. It's a part of their heritage. Well, the British school system still sets a play, and they call it the set play for A-level or for O-level study. And that means that students will spend a whole semester or a whole year on that one play. They read the criticism. They talk about how it would be performed. They know that one play really, really well. But 50 years ago, they would know 10 plays that well. Mm -hmm. And they would be able to recite them. They would be expected to perform them in class. Part of what's fun to me, Tom, is that that's very similar to what a British boy's education would have been 400 years ago. But the text clearly would not have been Shakespeare texts. They would have been classical plays by Seneca or by Sophocles or Euripides. But they would do the same thing. They would translate those plays from Greek or Latin into English and then back again. They would recite lines from those plays. They would perform those plays. They would write essays on that plays. And so what happened in the British school system, I think, after the 17th century is that same approach to classical texts was taken with texts by Milton and by Shakespeare, and they were treated in exactly the same way. I think I interrupted you about five minutes ago when you were proceeding in such a way that you were developing, uh, talking about the history of what has become the bard over time, and that is... Again, there's another word that you, you, yes. you, everyone knows what it means, and 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 Shakespeare didn't immediately become a hit. He became a hit. What about 1750, 1800? Um, I think probably David Garrick gets credit for that, 
the 100th anniversary of the death of Shakespeare would have been 1716. Mm -hmm. But there was a great jubilee in 1767, I think it was, which was the 200th anniversary pretty much of Shakespeare's birth. And Garrick decided as a theater impresario that he was going to put himself and Shakespeare and Stratford and London on the map and in some ways almost dragged Shakespeare out of obscurity. Mm -hmm. And people mocked him and made fun of him, and he lost money at the great Shakespeare Jubilee. But that was the beginning of the Bardolatry, I think, as we now know it. Right. The plays were reissued in published form. Uh, Dr. Samuel Johnson uh, sold subscriptions to bring out an edition. Did his criticism and so on work on I mean, I've it just bought a book called The scene. Club. I don't know yes. if you know about that. The Scribblerians. Yes. But part of what I think is so interesting is that what goes around comes around. Many of my son's friends now, if they want to publish a game or make an album, they will go to their friends and try to raise money through Kickstarter an online fundraising um, organization. Well, Johnson did that by subscription 200 years ago. He wanted to come out with an edition of Shakespeare's plays, wanted somebody to pay him for several years while he compiled that in the same way that he compiled his dictionary and sold subscriptions and promised, if you pay me today, I'll give you a book two years from now. Now, it took him 10 years instead of two years, but he did manage by himself to put out the first dictionary and the first collected works of Shakespeare and the first really professional-grade criticism of Shakespeare and was one of the first writers to make a living as a writer. And he only had one good eye. This, so this when, is the amazing thing. Exactly. So when we think about the new inventions that we've come up with, mm -hmm. um, book publishing, subscriptions, Kickstarter, somebody was there before. When we think about classical education and memorizing plays, lines, and putting them on in the classrooms, they were doing that 500 years ago. They just weren't doing it with Shakespeare. They were doing it with important texts and important writers. And Shakespeare was pop. It would be one thing I thought about when we were talking earlier about the disappearance of, you know, I like the quotations. But sometimes one or two of them get get in our brains and they kind of eat us out. The, the band of brothers thing, yes. uh, there's almost nobody that doesn't know what that's about. I, I mean, the, the, the thing that it was used as the title for, but they may not know where it came from. But uh, Shakespeare was was writing about this 500, 400 years ago. Right. And he was talking about an even earlier war, the Battle of Agincourt when Henry V was totally outnumbered by the French troops and the king delivers that speech to all of his hired soldiers who are not at all of his rank, of his class, of his educational level, but he called them at that moment his band of brothers mm -hmm. because he said, anyone who serves with me, anyone who dies with me will be my brother. You will be ennobled you will be lifted up to a totally different rank in society. Isn't it wonderful how the British, this is my judgment, have been so inspired by wonderful words? Because if, she, if Winston Churchill hadn't existed, things would be different. Exactly uh, so. And, and I, I, we will fight them on the beaches. <laughs> exactly. I, I, he, he had as much to do with winning the war. But uh, a lot of the quotations think, I, I have a friend who, told me a story. He, he was had come home from college, and he was listening to Beatles tunes. 
and uh, on the front porch. It, this was a part of town that had old. It was an older part of town. It had porches, you know, where you could sit. And the, the little girl from next door was about twelve, and she came over, and he was playing his records, and she said, "Those Beatles guys, they've stolen all those songs from all those other people." And what she did not recognize here was that this wasn't plagiarism. In in fact, uh, but she and and so a lot of what we we say we do not know. To be or not to be. I mean, somebody will say that at the drop of a hat. Yes. Well, there's some even more subtle than that. When my kids and I were reading the Harry Potter books and they talked about apparating through the flu, they would talk about disappearing in thin air. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me a perfectly normal way to, to describe appearing and disappearing. But Shakespeare got there first when he was talking about Banquo and Macbeth meeting the witches. And... Benquo and Macbeth turn to one another and say, where did they go? And the answer is, they disappeared into air, into thin air. Oh, so there are a dozen of those that most of us don't know about that somebody who could really put words together came up with 400 years ago. Well, before we take another break, am I going to be able to hold on a little bit? See, I've become wary of... Uh, of uh, the permutations of modernism, or not modernism, because that, that's a term that means something. Postmodernism. Postmodernism. Well, I'm bothered by this Alexander Hamilton thing just a little bit because it, I used to be a history teacher, and I think it's nice that it's entertaining, but I have a feeling that it uh, is not good history. Well, I know it's not good history. I mean— but it all came from Ron Chernow, right? He wrote the biography of Hamilton that inspired Fire. Lin Manuel, that had him tell his own version of to the story. To take flight, though, but but you said he told his own version of that. But we we still, I'm all right as long as Ron Chernow is still there. You know, I'm I'm not I have no problem with the entertainment value of it. I, I was speaking to you about uh, my favorite romance. Uh, uh, movies. Dr. Shivago is one of those. Yes. But I don't think that, the, the, as I remember, the, the romantic element that is so present in that was not so present in the, the 1958 novel that yes. Boris Pasternak wrote. Yes. All right. One more footnote. One of the very best Shakespeare filmmakers was Gregory Kozintsev, who made a Lear film and a Hamlet film. And the text that he used was a translation from Shakespeare's English into Russian by <laughs> our friend Dr. Pastanov. Ah, okay. But then when the films were released in English, the um, subtitles were not translations from Pasternak's Russian back into English. They left Pasternak out completely and went back to the Shakespeare text and gave us those so it seems as if the plays are closer to the English than they really were in that film version. Oh, but man. one of the reasons that's such a great film is it has great acting, it has great directing, and it has great language. Shakespeare and Pasternak co-writing that together. And we got on down this road by, by talking about the fact that one of the things that the plays were most remembered for were over time was the language itself. And of course... At the time that the language is, is, is being written and these plays are being put on, is the same time that the King James Bible is being written. So what we ha I believe what we have is fundamental things here. Shakespeare coined a lot of new words. Yes. Well, one of the things I was going to tell you was that probably the Shakespeare reading that I did was third most important in helping me understand language and history and culture and literature. I would put my study of Latin ahead of that, and I would put my going to church and listening to the Bible read in King James mm -hmm. ahead of that. 
because both of those things, Latinate phrases and the the biblical passages, worm their way even deeper into my psyche than the words of Shakespeare ever did. What I'm always been, and then we'll take a break. Uh, John, get ready. Astounded by is the number of book titles that come either from King James or from Shakespeare. Yes. Uh, and you, you, uh, and Faulkner used some some of those too. But we'll be back. The time has flown. We have one more quarter of our program left tonight. But maybe somewhere this will be a commemoration of the career of Shakespeare and make someone want to go buy a book about Shakespeare or something that he has written. So here's the question we're going to lead back with. Okay. What are the top three greatest selling plays? I talked to the publisher of the Folger Shakespeare editions, and he told me in order what the top play sellers are. So I want you to guess when we come back, Tom, what the top three most popular titles are. All right. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. News Radio 680 WPTF. Jerry Walton, professor of English. I wish he would... I wish he would come more often and and we could just have a a bull session every once in a while, but he's been so busy. Think about it. You're coming more often. You don't have to answer tonight. You can say no later. It'll be all right. Um, We have a caller. John, you said Debbie was on the line. Okay. Uh, Debbie, good evening. You're on WPTF with Gary Walton. How are you tonight? Okay. Well, I just wanted to mention my two favorite quotes. I think they're my two favorite. I I really like Shakespeare quotes, although I enjoyed reading them and uh, seeing plays um, in college and in adulthood afterwards. But um, two quotes have meant so much to me and still do. May I I quote them? Sure, sure, even if they have bad words in them. Okay. We'll blip those out is what we'll do. It's all clean. But um, the first one is, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day. Thou canst not then be false to any man. Okay, that's the first one. That's okay. a good one, Deb. Uh, and the second one, sweet are the uses of adversity, which, like the toad, ugly and venomous, wears yet a precious jewel in his head. I don't know where that came from. As you like it. As you like it. And the first one is from Hamlet. Isn't yes, it? it is. It's Polonius. Okay. Well, that was my contribution. Well done. I'm Thank really you. Really enjoying this show. Gosh, I'm learning a lot. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, that's that's our what we're always up to, and uh, uh, it's good to know you have interest other than eating pastries. And, uh, well, and and music. <laughs> and music. No, I'm just kidding you. Okay. I was telling Gary beforehand that you were a cat watcher and. Uh, uh, Oh, yeah, a cat and dog watcher. A yeah. cat and dog yeah. watcher, and that you're a member of our radio family. Debbie, thank you for joining well, us tonight. Well, thank you, and, and thank you so much for your guest. I, I hope he will come back soon. Okay, okay. we'll, you, we'll do our best. Okay, have a good night. Bye. Joe, I think, is two things. One is that there is a tradition of turning to authors like Shakespeare for advice, for counsel, for mm-hmm. words to live by, and... Whether the plays were intended that way or not, clearly many, many of us for many, many years have used those kinds of literary works for that purpose. And the two quotations that Deb picked out fit that. Both of them are spoken by older male characters. Both of them are giving advice to younger courtiers around them. In the first case, it's Polonius talking to his son and his daughter. In the second case, it's Duke Senior who's been exiled into the forest and all of his courtier supporters are complaining because they're cold and they're far from civilization. And his line is, sweet are the uses 
of adversity. Mm-hmm. Not just suck it up, but you can actually benefit from this experience. You'll come out better on the other side. What we will talk about next year or some other time is the idea that Shakespeare did create sort of an idea of what a uh, an ideal person or a good person or a healthy person would be like. And, you know, I, I mentioned the name Bloom earlier. He has this idea that Shakespeare created man. Uh, invented modern, the human, modern invented man. Invented the human, exactly. right, exactly. And, of, and of course, there are other people who think that uh, he had a little help from my friend Montaigne, who, who, who he was a student of. But you were going to ask me about the, the, the hot three at right. the top and so on. What and, we learned from the Folger editor is that almost half of their book sales from the Shakespeare corpus come from six titles. And over a quarter come from three. Mm-hmm. And Debbie's already given us one of the three. You want to guess which two, which one of her three was one of the three most popular selling Shakespeare plays? Now, I, I think what we have, uh, what I would say, if I understand that question correctly, is, is that Hamlet is, is, right. is, it would probably be number one. Hamlet's one of the top three. That's yeah, right. It, so you've got two other votes, Tom. Macbeth. Nope, it's in the top ten, but not in the top three. Okay. Keep going. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, Lear. Nope, that's barely in the top ten. Okay, but then I, after I thought, after I started saying it, I thought that is, that's too complicated. So think about the school audience. Go back to the plays that students are likely. Julius to Caesar. Caesar is in the top six. It's in the top six. Okay. We're going to cut him out like little stars, remember? Right, right. Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet yeah. is one of the top three. Yeah, that's some, something that everybody knows about. And much, five, to, much ado about nothing. No. <laughs> five of the top six are tragedies. And so you were close with Macbeth and Lear. Othello. Julius Caesar and Othello are the other two in the top six. Okay, okay. But the other one that's number three in that list of top three is Midsummer Night's Dream. It's the only comedy in the top ten. Well, now, I have seen two Shakespeare plays at the Globe Theater in Stratford, yes. not not downtown. Yes. And one of them was a mid—now, they had this on Jeopardy one night, and the person didn't get it right. It's a midsummer, not no S. That's right. Night streams. The apostrophe S is on night. I, 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 need, I was not prepared to see that because I had never read it, and it is complicated— well, you've got four different plots going on. At one time. Um, Othello is much simpler. It just really has one plot. Right. But Midsummer Night's Dream has four. But I still think of all the comedies, it's my favorite because I see it showing all the stages and all the phases of love from young people falling in love for the first time to unrequited love to um, a, a loving couple who have their first child and find out how that transforms their relationship. Something for everybody, huh? Exactly. I should have asked about one thing, and I'm, if I don't if I don't close this up here, our producer is going to probably turn off the lights on us. But I, I wanted to ask you about the Tempest too, because it it tends to show up a lot these days. It's been popular for some reason, and I'm not yes. entirely sure. Dr. Gary Walton is a professor of English at Meredith College in Raleigh, and he has been our guest. Uh, we we think about ten years now to talk about Shakespeare. Shakespeare uh, died on. Um, April 23rd in the year 1616. He may have been born on the date, April 23rd, in the year 1564, I believe. And so we wanted to commemorate that. 